0: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with NLP Master Practitioner and Certified Professional Coach Michelle Rosenthal about the signs and symptoms of trauma from narcissistic abuse, healing, and identity. Welcome to narcissist apocalypse q and a everyone with us today on our show, we have Michelle Rosenthal, but before we get to our episode with Michelle Rosenthal, which is a great episode, everyone. It's actually a wonderful episode we really get into depthable uh you know not just uh, trauma and and identity, we start talking to each other, you know, about ourselves and how the show got started and, you know, uh, the progression uh, of things when it came to jumping through doors and opportunities. So please take a listen all the way to the end. And for those of you that want to be a guest on our Survivor Story Show, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com Top of the page, there's a button there that says guest form. Click on that button and you'll see a lot of instructions after that. In a way, we will go from there. And also, if you go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, there's a button that says community support. You click on that button. It takes you to our very own safe social network. And we have a community of people on there posting in our forums. We have integrated zoom meetings on Wednesdays and Saturday nights. We have meditation nights. We have closure ceremonies. So if you want to get more support, please do go to narcissistapocalypse.com top of the page, press that community support button. Another way to get support is to go to domesticshelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. DomesticShelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing. And they can connect you with local resources like shelters and find ways for you to heal and move forward. So please do go to DomesticShelters.org to access this free resource today. And... We have a sponsor of our show, a friend of the show, Bloomers Trading Co. And Bloomers Trading Co. hand-makes stylish garlands for modern events and home and wants you to finally enjoy gathering with your friends and loved ones this holiday season. Bloomers Trading Co. is known worldwide for their like-real durable holiday and Christmas garlands. And if you order before November 20th, they are offering you... My listeners, you people, 10% off. So head on over now to bloomerstradingco.com for 10% off all your holiday and Christmas garlands now. These will be selling out fast, and I don't want you to miss out on this holiday season. So please do go to bloomerstradingco.com, and that will be in our show notes. And that is it for today. I really want to thank Michelle uh, Rosenthal for being a guest on the show. Uh, she's infectious. You will, you'll have to hear she's just someone who has this infectious voice and you'll be hanging off of every single word while learning a lot at the same time. So a big thank you to Michelle Rosenthal. And now without further ado, here is my episode with Michelle Rosenthal. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A everyone. With me today, I have Michelle Rosenthal. How are you?
1: Hey Brandon, I am I'm good. I'm super pumped to be with you. This is I've been looking forward to this all day.
0: Well, thank you for being here. For For those that don't know you, Michelle is a trauma recovery specialist. She practices as a board-certified hypnotist, an NLP master practitioner, and a certified professional coach. She is an award-nominated trauma author of three books, and she is a trauma and PTSD survivor and mental health advocate, and you can reach her at mytraumacoach.com. michelle thank you for being here we're going to talk about ptsd today we're going to talk about trauma today cptsd and you know i think this is what i just said there this is a really big distinction for people which is what is trauma what is ptsd what is cptsd they are all different so let's just first start off with trauma what is trauma what are the signs what are the symptoms
1: Ah, one of my favorite questions because trauma education is so important and nobody teaches it to us. You know, when we're kids, we get all kinds of education K through 12, but nobody ever sits us down and says, Hey, look, things are going to happen to you and that's okay. And it's quite normal if you experience these things afterwards. So let's go through it because I know from personal experience, if anyone had <laughs> had given me the information I needed, I, I could have healed three decades earlier than I did. <laughs> so let, let's start like this, Brandon. Every speaking engagement that I have, and I just had one yesterday, so it's really fresh in my mind, I start everything by asking the audience, everyone who's ever had an experience that feels less than good, please stand up. And then I say everyone who never had an experience that feels less than good, stay seated and then people stand up, and then I ask everyone, "Look around. Is anybody sitting down?" And of course, everybody's standing up because we've all had an experience that feels less than good. And and the reason that I do this exercise is because the base definition of trauma, given to me by the founder of the Refuge, a healing place, and Judy Crane, if you know her at all, she's an LMHC, and she told me when on my podcast years and years ago that. The base definition of trauma is any experience that feels less than good. So I always like to start there because we all can be on the same playing field then. And then if we want to take it to the next step, a trauma is really any experience that overwhelms your ability to cope. And so if we look at both of those definitions, it becomes very easy to identify trauma, wouldn't you say?
0: Mm-hmm. Very easy.
1: Yeah. And then within that, we have big T trauma, those life-altering experiences where you are not the same physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And then little T trauma, those little speed bumps that happen in a day or in a life. You don't get the promotion that you wanted. You don't have the partner that you were looking for or your partner dumps you or whatever it is. Those, they're not life-altering traumas. They don't change who you are essentially or how you see yourself, others, and the world in a way that just regulates you. But they are experiences that feel less than good. So with that as our baseline, then we can move into even before we talk about symptoms, let's talk about what trauma comes from. Because a lot of times I'll talk to people and I literally had a, a a rape survivor in my office telling me she didn't think she had trauma or PTSD because she hadn't been on the front lines of Afghanistan. And while I think our military is amazing, I think it's important for each of us to recognize that Trauma happens off the battlefield, too. And so let's talk about the origins of trauma. It can be military, of course, but the larger trauma and PTSD population is actually civilians, just by the numbers. And trauma comes from all kinds of things, car accidents, medical mistakes, domestic violence, sexual assault, childhood abuse, childhood sexual abuse. Let's call it out narcissistic abuse. That's where we are, right? Because trauma is not necessarily just a physical assault it can be an emotional assault or a mental assault and regardless of whether it's physical in nature all trauma is physical because whatever affects how you think affects how you feel and your body is a physiological feedback machine so anything that changes the way you think changes the way you feel affects your body as much as your mind so does that make sense so far oh yeah Okay. So then we get into, well, what are signs of trauma? Well, in the first 30 days after major big T trauma, but you could say that this shows up for little T trauma in some instances too, but major big T trauma, we have things, symptoms like disrupted sleep, sleep pattern changes. A lot of people can't sleep after trauma. They get aroused very hypervigilant. I mean, aroused in the sense of you're always looking for danger, right? You may have um, nightmares or flashbacks. You may start to feel more anxious than you did. You may have mood swings. These are all, within 30 days, the brain uses those first 30 days of acute trauma to wrap itself around what just happened and find a way to fit that experience in with your view of yourself, others, and the world. And that's normal. And that happens to many people. And within 30 days, a lot of that resolves. You'll find that you start eating normally instead of not eating or overeating. You may find that you, you start Sleeping the way you always did rather than sleeping too much or sleeping too little because everything settles and your body re-regulates, your mind re-regulates, and your life goes on. For those who that does not happen, that's when we can start to think about PTSD. PTSD only gets identified or diagnosed when those symptoms, and I'm going to give you four categories of symptoms, four categories of symptoms persists for more than 30 days and substantially disrupts and dysregulates a person's ability to live a life. So, We have four categories of symptoms after a major life-altering event. Category number one, arousal, hypervigilance, that feeling that something bad is always going to happen. And so you're always on alert, which is really your sympathetic nervous system gets pegged and stuck at a high range. Your sympathetic nervous system is your fight, flight, or freeze response. And that is all of your stress hormones. And so you can think of the body as a pendulum. It swings or it's designed to swing between your sympathetic and your parasympathetic responses. Sympathetic is your arousal. I'm going to fight back. And in that moment, all non-essential systems of the body shut down. Your digestion shuts down. Your reproductive system shuts down. Your thought process is shut down. And everything, all energy of the body goes to just survival. So all of your blood literally pumps out into your extremities so you can fight back, so you can run. And naturally, your body should, when that's all over, swing to the other side of the pendulum, which is your parasympathetic rest and repair mode. That's when all of your stress hormones go down, your blood pressure goes down, your heart rate goes down, your digestion comes back online, your thinking ability, your cognitive analytical ability comes back online. We're naturally supposed to go between those two. With PTSD, we don't ever get to the parasympathetic side. We get stuck on the sympathetic side. So that's that fight, flight, or freeze response is the arousal response. That's category number one. Category number two, avoidance. You don't want to talk about what happened. You don't want to see who was involved with it. You don't want to be anywhere geographically near where it happened. So avoidance is a very big category, and it it makes a lot of sense because who would want to have to re-experience any of that? Now, re-experiencing is the third category, so it's the flip side of avoidance. Re-experiencing is you can't stop thinking about it. You just keep going back to that one or two or three moments that just are so emotionally intense, they they just will not leave you alone. Re-experiencing also is flashbacks where you're in the present moment, but you literally lose yourself in the present moment and some Part of you, and it's an unconscious response, some trigger happens, and it literally takes you out of the moment you have no control in the present moment, and you really think you are reliving with an absolute disconnect from the present moment. you are reliving some old moment and I, I've had a flashback, so I know exactly what that's like from the inside and and then the fourth category is mood alterations, where you are literally all over the place with no stability. So one moment you may be sobbing hysterically, another you you may be raging and yelling and screaming, and another moment you may be just so flat out depressed, you have no energy whatsoever. So when you have these five categories, the fifth category being you've experienced a life-altering event, then after 30 days, when these categories disrupt and dysregulate your ability to live a normal life, that's when we start looking at a PTSD diagnosis. And for anyone who thinks, you know what, maybe that's me, I would just encourage you right now to go online, find a PTSD self-test and take it because the PTSD self-test is based on the diagnostic and statistical manual criteria for PTSD. That's you know, what all the psychiatrists and psychologists use for diagnosis, the DSM.
0: And and you should listen to this because, you know, before our conversation started, I thought something that was to do with PTSD was someone who was talking really fast and they were always jumping in conversation. And I've been wrong this whole entire time. continue with what you were saying before I
1: interrupted you. Perfect, because the third part of this is you asked me about CPTSD, and there's a great book by Pete Walker about complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And the added component of that, it has all the components of PTSD. The added component is the interpersonal abuse that is such a hallmark of that. It's relationship driven and not necessarily a relationship that you're in. It's interrelational is what I mean. Um, So the Pete Walker book is phenomenal if you're interested and in learning more about complex PTSD and the different ways that it shows up and the different effects that it has and the different relationships that it, that affects and how we're affected within them. It's really a fascinating book. I I think actually.
0: So when it comes to, um, you know, as an individual who might have PTSD, there are certain identifiers within them, but you know, Before we get to the healing aspect of everything, a lot of people have coping mechanisms. Um, So for someone who's on the other side of things, who's a friend or a family member, what are coping mechanisms that you can see to help you know that something is going on? Because a lot of these things on the list as far as uh, signs and symptoms might be internal that you you cannot see. So what's something as an identifier for other people to know, okay, this person's going through something and how do I figure that out to even ask the question? And then how do you ask that question?
1: Oh, these are such good questions. Okay. So first I would say even for family members and friends, pick, hop online and do it, do a Google search for PTSD self-test because there are 22 questions on that test. And, uh, like I'll just, I'll just share with you from my own personal experience. So I was struggling and struggling in talk therapy for over five years, getting worse and worse and worse. And, you know, I, I, I thought my therapist was just fine. I didn't have a history of therapy, so I didn't have anything to judge it against. Um, but but clearly I was on a downward spiral and nothing we were doing was working. And so I started doing all this research and the research led me to a PTSD test. And of the 22 questions, I answered positively to 20 of them, at which point I could take those questions and put it down in front of my therapist and say, hey, do you think this is part of the problem? Because look at how highly I'm rating on this scale. So I think it's incredibly useful for a survivor and also for friends and family because some of it is things. Some of it, some of it definitely is something that from the outside you can see. Like if you're around somebody, you know whether or not they sleep for example, you know, survivors are notoriously insomniacs, especially with PTSD, because if you're that jacked up on cortisol and adrenaline, if you're that stuck in sympathetic mode, it is hard to come down and relax and rest and feel safe enough to sleep because we always feel we're in danger. So, so number one, I would say definitely get the, the self test, whether you're on either side. Um, number two, I would say that, you know, thinking about my family, if you have somebody in your family and I was this somebody, um, so I'm thinking about what they witnessed and what they would, you know, feed back to me. Um, dysregulated mood is really easy to notice when someone's just flying off the handle for no reason, but they're screaming and yelling about some innocuous thing. Something's not right there. That's um, one thing. Another thing I think you can definitely notice when someone's anxious. I mean, with my family, it was like if everything didn't go according to the plan that we had all agreed to, I had a meltdown. It's ridiculous. Nobody has a meltdown if you change the time of dinner from 6 to 6.30, right? But if someone in your family is having a meltdown over that, that's a little bit of a clue that something's going on because if if you can't manage change – something's off. And if you have to control everything down to that kind of minutiae, something's off, something's making you feel so uncomfortable that you have to be mega in control. That's, that's a sign to the people on the outside. Something's not right on the inside.
0: So this is what I had written down. You know, a lot of times people get misdiagnosed with a disorder when they really have PTSD and how that can really, um, you know, really screw around with you individually. Now you're thinking of one thing when you really don't have that, how do you go about really unwinding that and going through that whole entire process? Like, I don't even know where to begin or even end with this question or where to go. So I'm just going to hand it over to you because I can see your face and how excited you are.
1: I will take it because it's such a good question. And let's be serious. PTSD, the D is disorder, yes. post-traumatic stress disorder. Whether or not you like the D, there's a big you know, controversy over whether or not we should drop the D. I personally love the D because when I, I struggled and thought I was crazy for over 20 years, and when I finally was diagnosed with a disorder, I thought, oh, thank God, the problem's not me. I'm not crazy. Like this thing happened and this is normal. What's happened to me. And it's a disorder. It's not a disease. A disorder can be cured. A disorder can be healed. A disorder can be changed or overcome. Awesome. So I loved the label. I know there are people that don't, but for me, it it was definitely the line in the sand between thinking I was the problem versus thinking there was a problem The, 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 the bigger problem that you're calling out is that a lot of times people who have PTSD are misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, you know, because all of these things can tend to overlap in their symptoms. So to answer your question, I would get a second opinion. I would always get a second opinion um, because if you're, if you're diagnosed with bipolar A, do your own research. If you're diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, B, get another opinion. Do not accept your diagnosis if it doesn't feel appropriate for you. Here's the caveat to that little story I told about my PTSD self-test. I took it, handed it over to my therapist and said, do you think this is the problem? Do you think I have PTSD? And Brandon, I kid you not. He did not even skip a beat. He said to me, What is PTSD? And I thought, oh my God, I've been in talk therapy for five years with someone who doesn't really understand trauma. It, like, I didn't even know that I should have researched trauma-informed therapists. So I hightailed it out of that office, researched, (laughs) you know, trauma therapy, because there are people who specialize in that and people who are educated and degreed to work with that those are the people to go to for diagnosis. And so I, I took my self-test <laughs> to that person and I said, do you think I have this? And, and after a lengthy assessment, she said, absolutely, this, this is what you're dealing with. And so, so that it's education, right? It's education and working with the right people and figuring out what you don't know so that you know what you don't know in a way that allows you to find what you need
0: we had a survivor story episode. I think it was the last one I put out or maybe the one before where someone knew something was wrong. It didn't have to do with PTSD specifically, but they went to uh, a therapist and then they went to a second therapist and then they Mm -hmm. went to a third pair therapist. They went to three Mm -hmm. to get a diagnosis or to figure out what was wrong with them or not wrong with them. What was going on to figure out the reality of the situation. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying that was really good of you. You know, if you had cancer, you go get your second opinion. If you have these things, you go get a second, but no one thinks of going to get a second opinion when it comes to psychological things. So it's what you said, very important, you know, always get a second opinion, get a third opinion if you need it, having an extra set of eyes, no one's Mm -hmm. perfect, you know, not every Mm -hmm. therapist is the right therapist getting all of those different opinions, and then you can put it all together and and, and figure out an answer. So, you know, that kind of goes into, in a way, healing, once you kind of have, you know, an answer, you can then Mm -hmm. I'll be like, okay, let's start to figure this out. And a very popular book that I think most people have read is called The Body Keeps Score. Mm -hmm. And a thing about that book, it's a wonderful book. It is a fantastic book. But an issue, if you had to take an issue with it, is a lot of people can't take what has been written and then go out and start applying it to healing. There's, you know, so you have oh, your own approach to healing. Uh, let's just kind of go through your uh, healing process of, of what you would get people to do. Um, and I know it's got three phases and it's a nine step approach. So let's start at the beginning.
1: Perfect, and and I think that you know Bessel Dr. Bessel van der Kolk is the author of The Body Keeps the Score. He's the father of PTSD uh, uh, psychology in our time, and he's amazing. And that book is amazing. It also happens to be very dense and a very hard read, especially if you're struggling with PTSD. Because if you're struggling with PTSD, you have insomnia. So you're already your concentration challenged, your focus challenged, you're tired, your brain is foggy. So you're already not operating on your fullest self, and that book is is hard, and a lot of survivors have told me it's just so dense I couldn't get through it. But I do I have such respect for the work that Dr. Vanderkolk has done and what's in that book. Um, I think the application process is separate because that book is a great uh, a great bible, if you will, of understanding, but it doesn't necessarily offer you a framework for okay, how do I do this? And that's the number one thing that I find missing in my own Recovery and every survivor that I talk to, because I'm always interviewing survivors. Like, what's the one thing that's missing that, if you had it, would allow you to heal at a, at a pace that felt good to you? And ninety five percent of the people say to me, a process, a plan, a strategy, a framework, and uh, direction. Direction is like one of the big words, and, and so in In my experience, both as a survivor who successfully completed one hundred percent recovery, because that was that was my intention. I was not going to stop until all the symptoms were gone. And that's not for everyone. Look, healing is hard. I don't know how explicit we can be here, Brandon, but healing sucks. <laughs> it is harder to heal than to actually live with the symptoms. So I'll tell you that flat out because you have to actually do the work. And with symptoms, you just have to like manage to survive them. So managing to survive symptoms and do the work is hard. The payoff is enormous because you get your life back. You get yourself back, which is amazing. So, um, how the framework helps is that, once you know where you're going, then you can just put your head down and do the work because you know the step that's coming up and the step after that, and you know where you are. PTSD, C-PTSD causes confusion. There's a lack of clarity and a framework gives you clarity. So let's talk about it this way. You're not going to read about this in a book. This is my own personal opinion. There are a thousand different ways to heal. This is just one of them. Three phases. Phase number one is control. Now, this is not control over the outside world. It's not control over anyone or anything or anything outside of yourself. It's about control over your own self, your own thoughts, your own feelings, your own responses, your own reactions. And in that control phase, which is where everyone begins, are three steps. Step number one is connection. Because trauma disconnects us, not only from the world, although it does connect us, disconnect us from the world, and not only from others, although it does that too, because we feel very isolated and alone, like nobody's ever felt the way I feel. But the, the worst way that trauma disconnects us is from ourselves. There is a break between who you were before and who you become after. There is a chasm between who you are are in this moment and who you really want to become. So that first step is all about reconnecting to your own self. Now, it would be ridiculous to say, well, just, you know, plug back into yourself. It doesn't work that way. You have to work through a spectrum of connection. And so I always find that the quickest thing to connect to in yourself is your desire to feel better. It's the thing that drives every day. Even on the worst day of symptom is the desire to feel better. So step number one is to connect to that desire to feel better and to really form a deep connection to it so that it is prioritized within you. And then step two is to commit to your results. And for for that, I think it's something as simple as creating a really tight healing intention And I I take everybody through a three-step process. The step for creating your healing intention, you have to figure out what do you want to stop? What do you want to start? And what will you be able to do once you've done that, that you're not doing now? So that you can literally, trauma survivors don't see the future. So you can't ask a trauma survivor, who do you want to be when all this is over? I have no idea because I don't even know who I am today. But what they can see is what they don't like in the moment and what they want to be different. So keep them in the present moment and just figure out what's the healing intention that is accessible to you today. Like I knew going into my recovery, and nobody did this for me. I did this myself. I didn't have a lot of help or direction in my process. Um, But I knew very clearly I wanted I had a recurring nightmare. I wanted it to stop. I was an insomniac. I only slept two hours a night. I wanted it to stop. I had an eating disorder because we all have coping mechanisms. That was mine. The less safe I felt, the more in control I needed to be, the more I took that out on my body. So I knew those, those are just three things that I knew needed to stop. I actually sat down and took out a legal pad and filled five pages of things I hated about who I was. So I knew very clearly all the things that needed to change. And on the flip side, I knew that I wanted to be the kind of person who could smile. I wanted to have an authentic laugh because I had a fake laugh that I'd been using for 25 years already. And I wanted to sleep through the night and I wanted to have a career that I liked, I just banged around. I was in default mode. So I just took whatever job was offered and it didn't matter to me what it was. So I wanted purpose. I wanted meaning. And I knew all the things that would benefit me when I had that. So a healing intention is really great because then you can start using it as a filter for Okay, now I've got this healing intention. How do I start living this healing intention? And that leads you to the third step in the control phase, which is which is all about com- committing to not just your results, but consistency. Because it's great to be connected to your desire. It's great to be committed to your results, but if you're not consistently taking action, arguably on a daily basis, then you're not going to get anywhere. So you need to really be clear, what am I doing every day to move myself just one baby step forward? And for some people, that's journaling. For other people, that's breathwork, meditation, yoga. I'll tell you, I I could barely sit still. Breathwork was not available to me. Meditation was a struggle, a real struggle until I finally broke through that barrier and then it became a really great tool for me. Um, but one thing I really could do was I love to dance. And so I committed to going to a dance class every single day because it got me out of my head and into my body, into the world, out of isolation. I mean, there were a whole slew of things. And the funny thing is you brought up Dr. Der book. He is a big proponent of Argentine tango for PTSD recovery, and that is the kind of dance that I was doing back in 2007 before he even wrote that book. So I love those kind of out-of-the-box processes that you can put into your healing journey that provide consistency and allow you to really interact with yourself and others in a very positive and healing way. So let me just pause there. That's phase one. Phase one is control and it's reclaiming control through connection, commitment, and consistency.
0: So within that, in in phase one, you mentioned doing the work Mm -hmm. and... Well, overall doing the work, and it's something that people struggle with before we get on to phase two or phase, in, in phase three. What is doing the work to you?
1: Doing the work is being responsible. What a great question. Doing the work is being responsible for your own process. You know, for five years, I showed up every Monday at four o'clock for talk therapy, and I thought that was doing the work. I showed up. And I talked and it was up to my therapist to fix it, up to my therapist to heal me. And I wasn't doing anything in between the sessions. So to me, doing the work is number one, taking responsibility for the change. Number two, being accountable for doing the things that create change for, you know, if if we were talking earlier about, with PTSD we get pegged in that high end of sympathetic arousal. Well, what are you doing every day to bring it down? Guided visualization is easy. You don't have to meditate, just put on an MP three and listen to it. It doesn't matter if your mind wanders. I have this this free MP three that I give to everybody because it's a I I built it on three different processes. It's 20 minutes. It doesn't take that long. It trains your brain for peace and calm. My clients love it. Most of them tell me they fall asleep listening to it. Half of them tell me they'd never hear the second half of it because their brain just, they don't know where they go. That's awesome because your brain's doing the work and you're doing the work by giving it the opportunity to train itself to go back Across that pendulum swing to parasympathetic mode. So those are some examples of doing the work. The other, I had a client yesterday. She shows up for her appointment and some days go this way. She doesn't want to talk about anything. She doesn't want to address anything. She doesn't want to figure out anything. She just wants to listen. Could I just talk? That's great. And I did. I'll talk. That's, I'm fine with that. But the thing is, if you're checking out that much, you're not going to heal. And, of course, I spoke to her about that. Um, but I remember in my own process, as a 13-year-old kid with major medical trauma that included a near-death experience, there was, I didn't have language to describe how I was feeling. I felt overwhelmed just by the idea of talking about it. So back then, when, when my mom insisted that I see a psychiatrist – And I said, oh, I'm not talking. I wish the psychiatrist had talked to me. You know, I wish she had used that time to educate me or to teach me something that was useful or just to talk, to soothe me. Instead, you know what we did for 45 minutes? We sat in silence. So I wasn't ready to do the work. But this is what I mean about doing the work. Like you have to show up being responsible, accountable, and engaged. And you have to go into the places that feel uncomfortable. And you have to find a way to do that that's safe and appropriately paced. But that's what I mean by doing the work.
0: Thank you. So um, phase two, what happens there?
1: Phase two is when you go deep into the work. So phase two is about change.
0: What a segue that was from both of us.
1: I know. <laughs> it was perfect. <laughs> really perfect. So, phase 2 is once you've you've got that connection, that commitment, that concentrated consistency, now you're ready. You've you've got yourself, I always see phase one is like setting the foundation. You're stabilizing. Phase two, things are going to get really rocky. So phase one, you you better put on your seatbelt and make sure you're strapped in because those processes that you put in place in phase one are going to be the thing that holds you stable in phase two. Phase two is going to be tough. Phase two is all about getting into the root cause of what's going on. So identifying that root cause, many of us know, some people don't. And here's, you know, something that I'll just share with you from in the trenches. The reason we all get into therapy is not the reason we're getting into therapy. So I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. The thing that got me into talk therapy was I was having a meltdown because Physically, I was not okay. The stress, I didn't know this back then, the stress of my trauma, and I had been severely triggered, so I, I plummeted. My, my body was shutting down. My mind was in meltdown, and I, I had gone to all these specialists. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with my bones, what was wrong with my stomach, what was wrong with my liver. All these things were going haywire. Nobody knew why. So I went to therapy to learn how to be a chronic patient. That's why I went to therapy. But you and I both know that's not why I went to therapy, right? <laughs> I went to therapy because I'm carrying all this trauma that I can't manage my life. So a lot of times we'll, what gets us into therapy is not the thing that we need therapy for is what I'm trying to say. When, so, when,
0: when I went through my uh, coaching program yeah. back there in 2012, uh, the first one of the first things said was someone's coming in to you because their knee hurts. But their knee only hurts because they got a back problem and their back problem is causing them to walk funny and that walking funny is causing their knee to hurt. You're not fixing the knee, you're fixing the back.
1: That's true. And I would add I love that analogy and I would add sometimes their back hurts because a disc is out in their neck. So, it's so identifying the root cause and and another way to look at that is you have to soothe the wound. There is a wound. And usually it's tied to one or two, not usually more than three, um, and usually just one or two really majorly intensely emotional traumatic moments. And when you can identify and soothe that wound, then everything changes. So you have to identify the root cause, soothe the wound. The next step is to, if you know the root cause, if you know the problem now, the next step is you have to design the solution, right? What do you want instead of what you have? And, and in that step, it usually has to do with you need to strip away your story because the story that you're telling yourself based on this wound that you've been carrying is is toxic and infected. So in that second step of designing the solution, you really have to strip away your old story. And then all of that opens you up to developing the new program. And I use the word program very specifically because I am a neurolinguistic programmer. I am a board-certified hypnotist. We work with the unconscious programming and the neurological embedded information. So the last step of that change phase is Develop the new program. So once you've soothed the wound, once you've stripped the story, then you can develop the new program. And the new program is really always based on um, shifting the meaning. Because what that wound caused you to think about who you are, develop the story you've been telling yourself, which caused the meaning that you've placed on that whole event. But when you soothe the wound and you strip away the story, logically and naturally, the meaning shifts and changes. And in that way, then you can put in place an entirely different program. And you can do that consciously and unconsciously. But that all that work, oh, it's exhausting. So it's so worth it. But going into it, you have to be prepared. And I always tell people, you know, Where's your support system? And that's not necessarily family, right? That can be friends. That can be coworkers, colleagues, church members, religious affiliations, whatever it is. Get your team together because you're going to want there to be people that you can connect with and that can hold you. And that team can be one other person, right? It doesn't have to be like we're not talking about a football game right we don't need nine people on the team we we just need some support so that as we're going through it we're held and for me um you know one of my team members i was blessed to have a family that was supportive but my biggest team member was my puppy because i i really wanted to end it all and that The more I thought about that, the more frightened I became about my own mental state. Um, And one day I just realized I need a puppy because if, if, if there's something else in here in this space with me, A, I'll be more present so my mind will stop spinning out that way. B, I'll have something I have to take care of so I'll be responsible for something outside of myself. And C, puppies are just funny. So a little humor goes a long way in recovery. And, and so I did, I went and I got a puppy. (laughs) So sometimes your team is, you know, four footed and furry. It doesn't have to take a shape, anything other than what feels good to you.
0: So you're presenting everything in such an easy and digestible way. And it's something that's very, complicated. So just really in the middle of the show here. I just want to thank you for, for being here. Thank um, you. So when it comes to phase three, what would happen in phase three?
1: Phase three is the fun part phase three is where you get to do what nobody ever taught you to do. And nobody ever told you you could do, because think about when we're kids, you're taught your ABCs, you're taught your one, two, threes, your multiplication tables, your geography, all that. Nobody ever sits down and says to you, Hey, did you know you can choose who you are? Did you know you can choose who you become? Nobody tells us that. And I have an eight-year-old nephew and a five-year-old niece. And so now I'm running my own experiment because I'm educating them about this. And I can't wait to see who they become when, who could you and I have become if we were told back then, Hey, look, you get to choose you, you get to choose not the outside world, not random events, not bad things that happen to you. You get to choose from the inside who you want to be. So phase three is all about create. We started with control. We moved to change. Phase three is create, 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 create. That is what it's all about, creating your post-trauma identity. And in that space, three easy steps. Number one, you have to imagine who that is. Now, identity is at the crux of all. Everything.
0: Yeah, yeah. and when we're dealing with uh, abuse, specifically uh, at the beginning, when you start with family, we have so many people that have no identity. They've been an extension of someone else their whole entire life, That's right. and they don't have an identity, and now they're trying to figure it out. And then for those that do have an identity within the context of an abusive relationship, they have lost – who they are and now they're coming out and also for the people pleasers out there a lot of them are doing things for other people and never doing things for themselves and don't even know what they like in a lot of instances so they have trouble establishing what their identity is after so go through the whole thing there with identity and i'm getting out of your way now
1: oh no you're terrific we're side by side
0: (laughs) you're the best
1: (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I I mean it truly. And, and, and actually, you know, they all trauma survivors need two things. They need safety and control. Yeah. And every trauma recovery has two impediments in it. Number one is a trauma addiction you know, addiction is very simple. It's a compulsion to do something that you don't want to do and you just can't stop. So we can't stop thinking about the past. We can't stop going back to the past. We can't stop defining ourselves by the past, whatever it is. It's a trauma addiction. And the other thing is an identity crisis. And that identity crisis happens the moment major trauma begins and it ends at the end of your phase three create process. So In the beginning, in the control phase, there's no, while I do believe, and I'm always working on identity from day one, you can't ask a trauma survivor, who do you want to be when all this is over, right? We spoke about this earlier because trauma survivors can't see ahead. But by the time you get to phase three and you've cleared out all that junk that was giving you all that brain fog and making all that blankness in your mind, now your mind's going to flood with all of this new stuff traditionally trauma recovery ends after phase two I've added phase three just from personal experience because I lost a whole year after my trauma recovery. I was symptom free, but I was totally lost because nobody told me how to live like this. Like now I, I, I wake up every day and I'm, I'm full of joy. I don't know how to live like that because what felt normal all those years was to wake up terrified. I wake up every day now and it's like everything's in technicolor, but for so long it was in black and white. I don't know how to adjust to that. So for that first year, I was really, really lost. So this phase three, your your mind is going to be firing on all cylinders now and it needs direction. So step one of that create process is imagine who you want to be. Like if you could be anybody who would that be? Now, a lot of people will immediately start talking about meaning and purpose and values, but I actually think that it needs to start earlier than that with just traits, qualities, and characteristics, because that's what you most immediately have available to you. It's going to take time to figure out what are the values that you want to live by, because first you have to figure out how to live as who you are. And I don't mean a lot of time, it can be a week, but it You need to start by deciding what kind of person do you want to be? And so in this first step, you imagine who that person is. And everybody has, you know, we're all on a spectrum of imagination, how much you allow yourself to be creative and step into it. I was pretty closed at the beginning for for myself. So I knew that I wanted to be a a person who was joyful. I knew that I wanted to be a person who could love because I had been emotionally dead for a really long time. I, I knew that I wanted to be someone who did something that made a difference in the world. I didn't know what that was, but I knew that that's what I wanted. So in that first step, you start with traits, qualities, and characteristics, and then you can start exploring values, purpose, meaning. Those things are a little – they're hard to do. So I, I, I don't even go there right away. Traits, qualities, characteristics, and then passion is the next thing to me to explore because when you can identify what you're really passionate about, what excites you, what turns you on, what makes you feel like, oh my God, I'm so alive. This is who I am. Oh, that's the moment. I want you to then start figuring out your values, your purpose, and your meaning. So that's all step one of that third phase. And then step two, once you really identify and work out that whole process of who it is that you want to be, then look for all, I like to bring business tactics into personal development because business tactics are so cut and dry. They're so linear and personal development is so all over the place. So in this second step, I like to bring in business processes, for example, quarterly planning. So if you know who you want to be, then you could say, okay, well, over the next 365 days, I'll figure out how to be that. That's very that's very lacking in focus, lacking in direction. But if you overlay on that, for example, a whoop process, do you know whoop? Nope. So it's all about, yeah.
0: Tell me about it.
1: I'm going to. Whoop is a quarterly planning process for business. So it's based on wishes, outcomes, obstacles, and your plan. And you, you can make a, you know, an X, Y axis. And, and then the top two quadrants, if you're going left to right, wishes and outcomes, and the bottom two, obstacles and plan. So then you take that, that overall identity that you want and put it through the whoop process, which is outside the scope of what we can talk about right now. But it allows you to develop a plan. And from that plan, you develop a strategy. And from that strategy, you chunk things down. And when you chunk things down, now you know what you're doing monthly, weekly, daily, hourly, if you want to, so that then you can literally be less overwhelmed and more engaged in actually taking the steps to create that person that you want to become, which directly then leads you to the third step in the create process, which is integrate. Because in moving forward, you're not leaving the past. You're not turning your back on your past self or having to cut them loose or or anything. You're taking the trauma that used to be so big and you were so small and you're flipping the proportions so that you're so big and the trauma is so small. There's, yeah, uh, you know, I'm from New York City and my mom's an artist. So she used to, oh my gosh, multiple weekends every year growing up, she would take us to museums and she took us to the Museum of Modern Art one day. And I'm not kidding, the wall was a city block long and there was a huge white canvas white with a silver frame and you could see it like the the artist had painted the white it was white paint on white canvas and you could see the brush strokes and in the bottom right hand corner was a small black dot and i remember looking at that canvas i was probably 15 or 16 i'm thinking what a dumb picture I could do that. And it's hanging in a museum. But all these years later, I love that picture because originally the trauma is the white and you are the black dot. And in this integration phase, it all flips. You are the white and the trauma is the black dot. And we integrate the past into the present of who we are so that it becomes a small part of the larger being of you and when you do that that's the sweet spot that whole process that you started in the control phase that you pulled through the control the change phase and that you then layered in the create phase you have now completely gone from powerless to powerful when you are bigger than your trauma and that's where i hope every single survivor lands
0: so can you tell us a bit about your own uh, trauma recovery, and if it was linear, and I guess all of the things you had to do, I guess to discover your own identity.
1: I came out of my trauma recovery; all my symptoms were gone, but I was utterly lost. And during my my PTSD years, I was unemployable at a certain point. I was such a mess that um, my brother and father had a business and you know took pity on me <laughs> and, and hired me in a position that like. I could do whenever. I didn't have to come to the office. I didn't have to work regular business hours. It was awesome for someone who wanted to isolate and who didn't sleep. I was not clear headed. So I I couldn't work in an office where like you had to be on and engaged with people. So, so after my recovery, there I was 40 years old. I had no job, no career, no profession, no relationship, no family, no kids, like nothing that a 40 year old theoretically quote unquote should have. And and I was really, really, really lost. So excited to be symptom free, but I didn't know how to, it was sort of like, it was sort of like coming out of a dark room and into the bright light and my eyes just couldn't adjust. And I was saying to my brother one day, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like, it's great that I don't have these symptoms, but my life's not awesome because I don't know how to live like this and I don't know what to do with myself. And he said to me, you know, you've been a writer since you were a little kid, way before your, my trauma, I was 13. I've been a writer since I was seven. And my brother said, why don't you just write, just write, write about what you just went through, write about what you just did, write about what you just accomplished, write about how you did it. And he said, but here's the thing. Don't write in your journal. That's, that's old. Don't do that there's this new thing it's called a blog and it's on this thing called the internet so why don't you why don't you get on the internet and write a blog (laughs) but write a blog on the internet so I don't know if you remember blogspot.com of course okay so it's still around so that's where my very first blog was and um and I thought nobody's going to understand what I'm talking about because as survivors, we all think we're so very unique and special, right? Nobody's going to get what I mean. Nobody's had my experience and, um, but I thought, okay, I'll start, I'll start blogging. And the reason I'm telling you this is because this is how, the process happens. You decide, I want to be the kind of person that writes about what I just went through. You decide to take an action, right? It's within the 90-day the plan. I'm going to start a blog. I have now have to teach myself how to get online. I have to teach myself how to set up a blog. I have to figure out where to do that. So I have all these little micro tasks, right? I do all of this. I start blogging. I don't know the first thing about blogging. I just start writing. And I'm not kidding Brandon, within three weeks, the blog went viral, and all of these people, military veterans, domestic violence survivors, rape survivors, child abuse, child sexual abuse, all these people started leaving comments on the blog, writing me emails, and saying, how do you know how I feel? A veteran wrote me that. I, was, I didn't even know how to respond. I just wrote back, I don't know. I'm not writing about how you feel. I'm writing about how I feel. And he wrote back to me, but that's how I feel. How do you know that? Like, I don't know. And then I received an email from uh, a child abuse survivor who wrote to me, you just put into words what I've been trying to say for 15 years. How did you do that? Again, I wrote back, I don't know. I'm just writing like my own experience. And it was an eye-opening experience because it allowed me to realize we're all unique in our trauma and we're all unique in our recovery process as unique as snowflakes. But in the middle, we are completely universal in the post-trauma and PTSD experience. And the reason I'm telling this story is... Because all of a sudden, people kept asking me for more. And I'm an information freak. I am an academic through and through. I love learning. So I just started writing all that I'd learned. I just started researching. I launched a podcast so I could interview people who knew more than I did. It became my passion, my mission, my meaning, and my purpose to help other people heal faster than I did. I lost almost 30 years because nobody gave me the information that would have helped me find freedom. And isn't it funny, Brandon, that the thing I did just because I was passionate about it, well, here we are, it's 2021, right? I started all that in 2008. That led me to a huge podcast, sponsorships, advertisers, a full practice, because of course people kept asking me for help. I went and got trained. Then book deals started coming. I didn't even ask for them. They were completely unsolicited. I, to this day, don't have an agent. But I have all of these books out with these great publishers just because I stayed in my passion and I followed the good energy. So I like to share that story because everything is great within a framework and a a linear business-oriented structure and within that, you go all over the place <laughs> as you figure out step after step. And if you stay in tune with what matters to you, if you stay connected to that desire, but now it's a different desire, right? In phase one, we talk about the desire to heal and feel better. And in this part, this post-trauma phase, we stay connected to our desire to Do something that feels good. And if you just tap into that, you can just ride that wave all the way into the beach because it will carry you and you will balance on it perfectly and beautifully. A little wobbly sometimes because you don't know what you're doing, but it will take you where you want to go. And whether it takes one week or or one decade doesn't matter. It's all the process of exploration and discovery. And that's, that's what life is really about.
0: I could go on forever with everything you just said right there. I, you know, part of the show, like, I guess there are survivor stories, part of the mandate or not mandate, but the things I like the most when I, when I'm, before I interview people, I always say that part of your job, because whoever is the guest on the show, it, they're, they, it's their job. It's to me, it, they're doing a job. And part of their job is to articulate their feelings of the situations that they were in there, not just, you know, to describe the situation, to describe all these little things, but also to really be intricate on how they are feeling within those specific situations, because that, those words are giving someone else a dialogue uh, and, and um, a vocabulary that they might not have had before. They know that there's something and they haven't been able to attach it to something. And now we we give them that. And when that happens, so many more things can happen. All of a sudden, they have words. They have a way to explain it to themselves in a way they couldn't do it before. They have a way to explain it to other people so they can start maneuvering and shifting. And, you know, a lot of what you said there, you know, has to, to do with that. And it's interesting how, you know, people's stories might not be the exact same stories, but there's this core thing. And, uh, you know, I resonate with a lot of everything you said, just because, you know, I think your life is different from mine in a million different ways. But in this core way, we are the same.
1: Speak to that.
0: Um, What does that mean? What does that mean? That, you know, you, you started talking about, I guess... As far as the show goes, that how it just kind of, how you had Mm -hmm. your blog just go. And once that happened, something sprouted and Mm -hmm. you just felt, you you went with it and Mm -hmm. you felt that this was what I'm doing Mm -hmm. and this is how I'm going to do it. And all these opportunities started to present itself once you kind of said, I'm walking through that door. And with this show, it wasn't intended to be this. This just wasn't mm. the intention of this show to begin with. Mm-hmm. It wasn't mm-hmm. even a thought process in my mind.
1: That's gorgeous.
0: And then when the door opened, I was... Uh, some. You know, when you live a lot of your life pessimistic and you live a lot of your life um, just... Uh, not that you're not aware of things and you're not, but when you're living in a specific kind of way, not that a dark cloud is over you, but just, I tried to explain, but as your life shifted and you're now in this moment, I was like, that's a door before all these other things were happening. There's too much kind of going on. I couldn't see that there was a door or recognize, Hey, that's a door. And as soon as that happened, um, I was like, that's a door and I, I should walk through it. And I think a lot of it has to do with, um, confidence and these little building blocks. And, uh, I always believe in the power of service work as far as building confidence in you and the shared human experience where if someone Like whatever you're doing in your life, if you don't value yourself, but then one day through service work, someone who looks at you and goes, Hey, I value what you just did and there's no money behind it. And there's nothing like that. It's just a human to human experience that gives people confidence that, you know, you're worth something. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the time you're lost in self-worth, uh, issues and things along those lines. And all of a sudden, you know, a door opens, you walk through. And then you walk through the next one and you walk through the next one. And then all of a sudden you can see five doors. Um, And I think that is in a strange way, our our similarity in, in the sense of um, we are helping people uh, with our own experience, helping them give language and, uh, everyone else has to do their own work, mm-hmm. but, you know, we help propel them to have them get there. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. You know,
0: I think you take it a lot step further with, uh, the programs and things that, that you do as I see myself more as, uh, I'm a stepping stone to get you to people like you.
1: Mm-hmm. We're all in an ecosystem yes. of healing right? Yeah. So it's great to be interconnected that way.
0: Yeah. So did that explain everything? Yes. Thank (laughs) you. (laughs) All right. So, you know, um, before we leave here today, um, you know, where can people find you once again, where are you located? Um, Mm -hmm. are you worldwide? Tell us everything.
1: So I'll tell you a funny story. I've been, uh, you know, since the pandemic, everybody's worldwide, right? Everybody works virtually. But I started virtually because in 2008, I launched my blog. In 2009, I realized I need to get trained because too many people are asking me for help and I, I can't help them. I'm not qualified. So 2009, I spent in all of these programs getting certified to be able to help. And at the end of 2009... I opened up my, my first like 10 spots of, of working with people. And because my audience was global already, it never occurred to me to have a, a local office because the people who were asking to work with me were not local. And so I immediately went on, you know, there was no zoom, there was only Skype. And so I thought, okay, well I'll work with people by Skype or by phone. My very first client i to this day, I have never seen her face. I only worked with her by phone. And I still, that was in 2009. She, she was, was, it's an interesting story because it shows you the power of, of connection. She didn't want to be on camera. She only wanted to work by phone. And I said, no problem. We'll do it that way. And 2021. Now we finished our work in 2010. I still receive email from her at least once a month of her telling me all the fabulous things happening in her life and thanking me for the work that we did so that she could have this life. And so, yeah, totally global because in the beginning, I didn't know you you couldn't be. And when I, when I launched my business and my mentor I, took me to lunch and she said, okay, now we need to get you an office. I'm like, I really don't need an office. I'm doing everything online. And my mentor said to me, you can't do this all online. You need to be in person with people. And I said, really? Because it's working online. It's working by phone. And so it's just funny to see where the world comes. So I'm very comfortable working virtually by phone or by, by Zoom um, is my preference now. And and I also, I do have an office now because I like being in person with people. I found after several years that I missed the the physical space of being with people. So, so now I have, uh, I live in a beach town in South Florida. I have a, a beautiful office here and I'd say 50% of my work is done in this office and the other 50% is done online. But no matter where you are, or what you're doing, you can go to mytraumacoach.com and just download the free brain training MP3. And if that is all you do today, that is enough. And then if all you do, there's an interesting study that was released by Dr. Caroline Leaf. She's a neuroscientist and she speaks about this, that To put in place a habit, we've all been taught takes 30 consistent consecutive days, right? But she said that the research now shows that if you are a trauma survivor, the trauma brain requires 63 consecutive consistent days of habit building for the habit to take on a life of its own. So for what it's worth, if you come over to mytraumacoach.com and just take that little mp3 you could use that for 63 days and every day know i'm doing something to move myself forward because you're actually training your brain toward that parasympathetic response that peace that calm where you have more control so you officially can say to yourself i've entered phase one
0: so before we leave today what would be you know your last words your words of wisdom for everyone Uh, out there in our audience?
1: You have enormous healing potential. The goal is learning to access it. You can do this. You just have to dig deep. And I believe in you because I do believe that every single one of us can feel better. You just have to find your way. And don't accept anyone telling you that it can't be done. And don't accept any moment that makes you feel like it can't be done. You just have to climb over those and keep going because you can do this and you just have to find your way to do it. And that's what I would say.
0: Do you do guided meditations? I do. Uh, Cause I was about to say you should. Uh <laughs> Boy, I'm a hypnotist, right? I, that so. is true. That is. Uh, <laughs> so indeed I do. Uh, all right. Well, Michelle Rosenthal, thank you so much for being here today. It was a treat to have you here. Uh, not just a treat. I mean, you gave everyone a vocabulary today. You gave everyone a really interesting. I, I, interesting isn't in a word. I mean, you gave everyone an education and, uh, I hope everyone who's listening, if you're going through, uh, you know, trauma right now, you get a hold of Michelle because I, you heard today. I mean, Michelle is, knows what she's doing. She's fantastic. Uh, and she's also just, she's just a great person as well. So, uh, Michelle, thank you so much for me and everyone in our community. And for everyone listening, we hope you have a good night.